morning, Bridge. It is so good to be with you this morning as we open up God's word out of the book of Matthew. Emily's pointing to me. What does she want? Bridge kids. Bridge kids can leave. Yes. Go ahead and join your wonderful teacher, Jaden Stokes, as she waits for you over the doors. Kids, we will reconvene with you after this session. Well, we're out of the book of Matthew today, and as you can see, our screens are not working, so if you could turn there in your Bible, that's a physical Bible, or on your phones, quick plug for the YouVersion Bible app. If you don't have it, get it. We're starting at the end of chapter 14 in the book of Matthew. That's Matthew chapter 14, verse 34. We're going all the way to chapter 15, verse 20. So we're starting in Matthew 14, going to 15. If you need a Bible, let us know. There should be some, some in the, under the seats. If not, share with your neighbor. This is a good chance to get to know them. Well, when I was a kid and my daily schedule still involved things like recess and playgrounds, the kids at my school had a favorite game. This wasn't the kind of game that we learned from parents or teachers. We didn't read about it anywhere. There weren't any televised events. And yet somehow, long before I was ever born, over the course of decades and decades, this game had not only been handed down and preserved, it had spread to every state, been carried from school to school, transmitted without any written record or outside organization, no Olympic committee, nothing except the mysterious and wild energy of kids on a playground. We called this game Cooties. <laughs> Who knows what I'm talking about? Raise your hand. I'm curious, raise your hand. There we go, yeah. For those of you who don't know, the basic idea was that someone, often someone of the opposite gender, was infected with cooties. And if they touched you, you got it. Now, there weren't any symptoms, no comorbidities or risk factors, but you still didn't want to get cooties because once you contracted it, all the other kids would run the opposite direction. They, they wouldn't even want to be near you, even if you didn't want to play. You were isolated, excluded. You were unclean. I have no idea how or when this game started, but I think the reason kids are so fascinated by it, the, the reason why it's lived on for so long, is that while cooties is just a game, it gets to something at the very core of what it means to live in this world. The truth that through ordinary, everyday contact with people all around you, you can become tainted or infected by a whole bunch of things. And this last year has been a vivid and painful illustration of this principle, am I right? But long before any of us had ever even heard of a coronavirus or a, a pandemic, before we had had contagious diseases like this, we'd always known that things like this were a constant fact of life. Our world is filled with infection, uncleanness, defilement, disease, and as we'll see in today's story, 
the people in Jesus' time were very aware of this fact. Except in today's story, in Matthew 14 and 15, Jesus and the Pharisees are going to be debating a very different kind of disease. A spiritual disease. And as we'll see, Jesus and the Pharisees are going to have different approaches to this spiritual disease. Different diagnoses and policies and treatment plans. And so with that, I invite you to please stand with me for the reading of God's word, starting in Matthew 14, verse 34. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, you need not honor his father and So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answers, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes in the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, our story begins with a familiar scene. Jesus rolls into town. Folks recognize him. Hey, it's that rabbi, that healer. And before you know it, it's everybody who's sick, everyone who's hurting. They all press in and they try to get even just one second with Jesus. Jesus. Just let me touch the fringe of your garment, please. Just the hem of your cloak. Because what do they think is going to happen? And when Jesus lets them, when Jesus doesn't sigh, when he doesn't go, oh, here we go again, 
when he doesn't try and leave the scene, when he doesn't have his entourage do crowd control or form a human shield, when he lets them come and touch him, they're healed. Now, I'm emphasizing this point because you need to know that this would have been shocking. This would have been incredibly unusual because if you were a religious leader like Jesus was, if you were a Jewish rabbi living in the first century, this was not something you did. You did not let sick people, unclean people touch you. In fact, the people like the Pharisees took this so seriously that they would purposefully avoid crowded streets. They would go the long way around or wait till after rush hour so that they wouldn't even accidentally come in contact with a sick or unclean person. What Jesus is doing here, letting sick people touch him, is unusual. Now, why? Why was this such a big deal? Because in the biblical mindset, uncleanness is contagious. Uncleanness is contagious. Now that statement needs some unpacking because in our modern Western context, cleanliness is primarily about hygiene and presentation. We think something is clean if there are no germs or dirt on it, if we've sanitized it. And if something gets dirty, well, most of the time you just wipe it down and you're good. Problem solved. Just use a Clorox wipe. But the uncleanness I'm talking about is a very different kind of uncleanness. The book of Leviticus spends five whole chapters on possible sources of uncleanness. I'm talking about things like leprosy, bodily fluids, corpses, things that the ancient Israelites associated with death. Leviticus tells us that if you come in contact with any of these things, you too became unclean. In fact, if you even just sat on a chair that an unclean person had sat on, you were now unclean. Leviticus goes into painstaking detail on how to tell apart clean and unclean skin conditions, discharges, animals, even buildings. And most importantly, it talks about what to do if you've become unclean. In most cases, quarantining, sometimes for a period of time, and then taking a bath, sometimes with a sacrifice too. Now let's be real, this is the part of the Bible reading plan that you skipped over. Genesis and Exodus are pretty okay, but Leviticus is where you start fading. Because this all just seems so alien to us. We don't think in these terms. What does this have to do with me, uncleanness, cleanness? But as distant as this all may seem, it's hard to overstate how important this concept of cleanness and uncleanness is in Scripture. Because at the heart of this, at the center of it all, is a simple question. How can a sinful and unholy people approach a holy and righteous God? How can we 
get close to God. See, what the people of Israel knew, what we have largely forgotten, is that entering God's presence is dangerous. Hebrews 12 tells us that our God is a consuming fire. And if you don't approach him on his terms, you're going to get burnt. To be sinful and unholy and to enter the presence of a holy God, to even be in the same general area, is to risk utter destruction. Our God is not to be taken lightly. Now hold on. I thought we were talking about uncleanness. Is it a sin to have a disease or to bury a body or to have normal biological rhythms? No, not at all. Scripture doesn't call these things unclean because it's a sin to be ritually unclean. After all, you just wait a little bit, wash yourself, and then you're good to go. But God gave his people, Israel, this system of cleanness and uncleanness for two very simple reasons. First, to paint a vivid picture of how sin and death keep us from God. And secondly, so that even though the Israelites could never be sinless, they could still approach God through the system. So you can see why in Jesus' time, the Pharisees took this concept of clean and unclean very seriously. They looked around them, and they saw a world that was descending further and further into sin and evil and uncleanness. And so they insisted on even stricter rules so that they could be sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that they remained clean. That's why in contrast to Jesus, the Pharisees were afraid of walking in public. And as we're going to see, the Pharisees weren't only good at social distancing. They were good at washing their hands. Look with me at chapter 15, verse 1. And Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, obviously, in this day and age, we're supposed to wash our hands before we eat for a very different reason. Because it's gross. But the Pharisees didn't send a delegation from Jerusalem to see if Jesus' disciples had a good safety, uh, food safety practices or to enforce COVID protocols. No, they're here in this passage because they have heard troubling reports that Jesus, this rogue rabbi, doesn't seem to care about biblical cleanliness at all. He's walking in crowds. He's touching sick people. He's not even washing his hands. Jesus is not taking this seriously. You can imagine them getting red in the face and going online to post angry rants about the Messiah. <laughs> now, we should go without saying that Jesus didn't have an issue with the Bible's rules on clean and unclean. After all, he's the one who wrote those rules. Jesus definitely cared about cleanness. But as we're going to see today, he had a few problems with how the Pharisees were approaching it. Three problems. Problem number one. The Pharisees were missing God's standard. Problem number one, the Pharisees were missing God's standard. Look back with me at verse one. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? 
The Pharisees are putting Jesus on trial, demanding to know why his disciples have the audacity to break the tradition of the elders. And Jesus, he turns that right around on them. He says, you shouldn't be the ones worried about me breaking anything because you're the ones breaking the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. See, Jesus calls it your tradition because nowhere in the Old Testament is ceremonial hand-washing required of regular old people like you and me. Only the priests had to wash their hands. And only when they were handling holy things or entering holy places. But according to the traditions of the Pharisees, everyone had to wash their hands. They figured, why not? Let's be safe. Let's have everyone do it. They had a lot of justifications for this, even some pretty good persuasive reasons. But at the end of the day, this was not something that God had commanded. They had created a man-made standard. And folks, this isn't something that only happened back then. We in the church are constantly setting man-made standards that we unrightly elevate to the level of Scripture. Christians don't wear jeans in church. They don't dance. They don't play cards. They send their schools to these schools, not these schools. The list could go on and on. And you know what? There might be legitimate, very good reasons to have rules like this. But these rules shouldn't be seen as having the same authority as Scripture. And they certainly shouldn't come at the expense of keeping God's actual commandments. This is precisely what Jesus is calling the Pharisees out on. They're they're so obsessed with keeping their man-made standards, but they turn a blind eye to people breaking God's actual commandments. Look with me at verse 4. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. That's the fifth commandment. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, He need not honor his father. In response to their accusations against Jesus, Jesus brings up another hot issue of their day. This was a loophole that some people had found in the man-made systems that the Pharisees had set up. Basically, if your parents were unable to work, they're getting old, and you had the means to provide for them, then you were, under normal circumstances, supposed to take care of them. Not that complicated, makes a lot of sense. But what people had figured out is that if they took whatever surplus, whatever profit they had, and they said, instead of giving this to God, or instead of giving this to my parents, I promise to give this to God. I, I, I vow, I, I take that, whatever was gonna you know, support their, their nursing home fund, and I, I say, I dedicate this to the Pharisees, to the church. And then, by the Pharisees' rules, they were free from their obligation. They didn't have to to use that money. They could could just hold on to it, invest it, do whatever they want. And the kicker was that they could usually just revoke their promise, just cancel it after the parents had died. It was was a really clever exception, a brilliant loophole to get around having to support your parents. That's a terrible thing, right? Right? It doesn't take a genius to see that this runs completely against the heart of the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother. And yet the Pharisees were completely willing to go along with this so long as their man-made standards were technically being followed. 
Look at how Jesus puts it, continuing on in verse 6. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. Y'all are hypocrites. You say that you're just trying to keep God's law, that you're just trying to worship God correctly, but you couldn't be further from the truth. You're teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men, and those commandments are actually consistently opposed to God. You've completely missed the point. You think God approves of this kind of empty, vain worship? You think for a second that this pleases him. You honor God with your lips, but clearly your heart isn't in the right place. And with this, Jesus gets to the second problem with the Pharisees. Problem number one, they were focusing on man-made standards and missing God's standards. Problem number two, the Pharisees were missing the real problem. They didn't see the depth of their condition. Look with me at verse 10. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And the disciples came and said to him, Do you not know? Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. With them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the mouth and is expelled? What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anyone. Now a lot of people, even really smart Bible scholars, think that right here, what Jesus is doing is he's getting rid of the whole Leviticus system of clean and unclean. They think that Jesus is coming out with a gallon of whiteout and he's just erasing whole portions of the Bible. Just kidding guys, it was all wrong, big mistake. For us Gentiles, it's easy to look at the Pharisees and to think they're just being crazy. After all, we don't have to do any of this today. But let me make one thing very clear. Cleanness and uncleanness, purity and defilement, these are biblical categories. And Jesus is not getting rid of them. He's not abolishing the law. He's fulfilling it. After all, it'd be really ironic if after accusing the Pharisees of making the word of God void, Jesus goes around and does exactly the same thing. See, Jesus cares about cleanness. He actually cares about it a lot. He invented it. But in this passage, Jesus is saying, look, first off, I never said that you could become unclean by your hands somehow becoming contaminated. And second, He's reminding the Pharisees of what Scripture had been saying all along. That this kind of outward uncleanness and cleanness was always meant to point to something deeper. 
a cleanness and uncleanness of the heart. In the book of Leviticus, after talking about what things make you outwardly unclean, leprosy, bodily fluids, corpses, the book goes into four chapters about what makes your heart unclean. And while being outwardly unclean was not a sin, while it's not wrong to touch bodily fluids or corpses or leprosy, it is wrong to be unclean of heart. In fact, Leviticus says to be unclean of heart is an abomination because what makes our hearts unclean is sin itself. Leviticus goes into great detail on this. It calls out sexual impurity, not honoring your father and mother, committing injustices towards the poor and the downtrodden. These were the things that would contaminate you, that would defile you. And just as being outwardly unclean would physically keep you from being able to approach God, uncleanness of the heart would result in eternal separation from God's holy presence. It's not that outward uncleanness didn't matter. It's that it was always meant to point to this deeper, more serious problem. Because what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. In other words, the Pharisees had it all wrong. It's not that we're clean and the world's dirty and all we have to do is keep from getting contaminated. It's that we are contamination factories spewing out uncleanness after uncleanness. We are dirty. We are filthy. We are polluting the air all around us. And this is something that we so often miss. We focus on fixing everything else around us, everyone else's problems, his problems, her problems, or workplaces, society. And we conveniently ignore the fact that we are a big part of the problem. That in our hearts are evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. When we speak, we reveal that these disgusting impurities live inside us and we're just vomiting them out into this world. This is true of us today, and it was true of the Israelites back then. Although they probably wouldn't admit it, the Pharisees had hearts that were just as unclean as everybody else, if not more so. Jesus calls them blind guides the blind leading the blind, with no idea that they were walking straight into a deep, dark, eternal pit. Israel needed some other way, a better guide, to show them how to truly have clean hearts. And that leads us to the Pharisees' third and final problem, problem number three. The Pharisees were missing true solution. The Pharisees were missing the true solution. See, the system laid out in Leviticus with the complex cleanliness laws and the sacrificial system and the temple and the priests, all of it was intended only as a temporary measure. It made it possible for Israel to approach their God even while their true uncleanness, the uncleanness of their hearts, was still waiting to be cleansed. 
It was like those emergency bandage wraps that they put on you to slow the bleeding while the ambulance rushes you to the hospital. Just a temporary measure. But the tragic thing is that the Pharisees got so obsessed with sticking on more and more band-aids that they forgot that they needed stitches. For all their efforts, as much as they tried, the Pharisees were caught in a losing battle. Because, folks, we can never make the world clean. We can't even make ourselves clean. And yet so many of us are stuck in these hopeless self-improvement cycles, trying to cleanse ourselves, trying to wash our hearts clean while we're standing neck deep in mud. Brothers and sisters, is this you? Are you unwittingly living lives just like the Pharisees? Trying to cleanse yourself by your own power, setting up impossible standards of behavior and presentation, and constantly depressed that you're just unable to measure up no matter how hard you try. If this is you, if you're tired of just having to grit your teeth and white-knuckle it, if you find yourself caught in the same sin over and over and over again, if your best efforts have done absolutely nothing to purge the evil from your heart, if you're working by your own power to finally come clean but only see yourself moving the dirt around, if this is you, then I have good news. Do you remember how we began today's story? With Jesus doing something the Pharisees would never do, touching the sick, the unclean. Well, now that we've looked at the rest of today's story, I want you to understand one key thing. Jesus was not afraid of being contaminated by uncleanness. But that's not because he didn't care about it or because he didn't think that uncleanness and cleanness was important. Now flip back with me to chapter 14. Look at verse 35 again. And just see what happens when Jesus comes in contact with the unclean. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. Brothers and sisters, do you see what I'm seeing? The unclean are touching Jesus. And instead of their infections and diseases making him unclean, just touching him cleanses them of their uncleanness. In Jesus, God was introducing something entirely new, something the world had never seen, a contagious source of cleanness, contagious purity. We've seen this all throughout the book of Matthew. Unclean people come to Jesus, Gentiles, lepers, people with discharges of blood, the demon-possessed, sinners, adulterers, even the dead. And Jesus is willing to draw near, to reach out, and he cleanses them all. Because the solution that the Pharisees were missing, the final cure that all the cleanliness and laws were pointing to, was simply this. The solution. Jesus makes us clean. 
The solution is that Jesus makes us clean. The deeper problem of our unclean hearts is only solved by Jesus' power. Because in Christ, all our sins are washed away. Christ removes every stain, every permanent uncleanness. So Bridge, what does this mean for you? What's the takeaway? Simply this. Know what the Christian life looks like. It does not look like the Pharisees. It is not a delusional belief that by our strength we can get out of this mess. No, the Christian life is to understand that we are like the crowds, that we're unclean. To have such a strong awareness of our own filth and to have such a strong desire to be washed that just like the crowds at the beginning of our story, when we see Jesus, when we recognize him, we get excited, we send around to everyone, and we call every unclean person we know, and we bring all the sickness that we have before Jesus, knowing that if we can only just touch the fringe of his garment, we will be made clean. To be a Christian is to know that you are only cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. And when you encounter Christ, when you allow him to clean you instead of yourself. You are washed in baptism as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Then the incredible, amazing news is that now, no uncleanness can keep you from the presence of God. The thing that the Israelites wanted, the thing the Pharisees were, were struggling for is now yours. Everlasting everlasting dwelling in the presence of God. That is yours. That is your gift. You have been washed. You have been cleansed, brothers and sisters. Hold on to that. Let's pray. Well, dear Lord, we come to you all our stains, with all our dirtiness, our filth, God, with just rags covered in dirt. And God, we, we just come and confess that no matter how hard we've tried, every detergent, every bleach that we put on it, God, we haven't been able to make ourselves clean. But God, you can make us clean. God, we acknowledge that our hearts are constantly defiling us, constantly defiling this world. God, that in us dwell evil thoughts, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, murder, slander. God, that we can't stop spewing these things out but God, we appeal to you. We cry out to you to give us a clean heart. God, if we could just touch the fringe of your garment, we would be made clean. God, we ask right now for a fresh encounter with your spirit. God, we ask that your son, Jesus Christ, would rule our hearts, God, 
God, that we would be clean as he is. We ask this knowing that nothing we do can make ourselves clean, so we lean on you, we cling to you. We ask that you would cleanse us. We thank you that you have done it, that you will do it again. We pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.